Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos in for Alexis Madrigal. Book banning is on the rise in the U.S., driven in large part by organized campaigns by conservative and religious groups and aided by recently enacted state laws. One of those laws in Arkansas could send librarians and booksellers to prison for providing certain books. And among the most targeted books are those dealing with racial equity and LGBTQ themes. Next on Forum, we're going to get the latest on book battles in California and across the country. And we want to hear from you. Do you have concerns about what your child is reading? Or did a book change your life at a young age? Let us know. That's coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Alexis Madrigal. Earlier this month, amid a sharp rise in book bans across the country, Governor Gavin Newsom called on educators in California to preserve students' access to books, including those that reflect the diverse experiences and perspectives of Californians. Individual book bans in U.S. classrooms and school libraries increased by 20% during the first half of the school year compared to the prior six months, according to a report by the free speech group PEN America. The increase is partly due to newly enacted state laws, and the bans, quote, continue to target stories by and about people of color and LGBTQ plus individuals, according to Penn. While rare in California, book battles are percolating in the Temecula and Huntington Beach school districts. In this hour, we're going to talk about the very real parental concerns over what kids are reading and the value of trusting children with a wide range of subject matter. Joining me first is Deborah Caldwell-Stone. She's director of the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom and executive director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. Deborah, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me to be here. Glad to be here. Also with us is George Johnson. They're an award-winning author of the young adult memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, one of the most banned books in the U.S. Their latest memoir is We Are Not Broken. George, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, Deborah. I'd like to start with you. Uh, book bans and attempts at censoring art are hardly new, right? Both in the U.S. Um, and just in, I think, the history of humanity. Um, can you just talk a little bit about historically what we've seen? It seems like there are kind of ebbs and flows of these types of movements. Well, certainly, you know, as you say, there's always been an effort to restrict or limit uh, access to books and information. Um, we can go back to the Comstock era uh, in the uh, 19th century, where they banned uh, availability of information about birth control, abortion, uh, sexuality, um, to more present times when there was a concern about young people's access to information. I actually think that 
in the United States, we reached a consensus uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, that what adults read was none of the business of government. Um, and so we've seen fewer attempts um, over time to limit, have the government limit access to books for adults. What we've really seen is a struggle in the last couple of decades over what young people can read in libraries and in classrooms. And I'll tell you that, um, you know, we've always seen moral panics of some kind or another. Um, in the 1990s, the moral panic was all about secular humanism. Um, in you know, Harry Potter was a target for censors in the, um, and the movies were most popular in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. What we've really seen and have are really troubled by is not complaints about coming of age novels that might be a little spicy. Uh, we're seeing uh, complaints about books that reflect the lives and experiences of LGBTQ persons and BIPOC persons. A real emphasis on removing books that might allow young people to read about the lives and experiences of those that they might not know, or even just reflect their own experiences. And it seems very politically motivated um, by a number of groups that are pursuing an, an attempt to just simply silence and erase whole communities um, and the people that speak for them, the books that reflect their experiences. Um, most tellingly, I think, to, is that we collect data. We've been collecting data on book banning in libraries for over 30 years. And what we found is, you know, we used to be able to see that, you know, a parent would raise a concern about a book and they would bring that concern to a teacher or to a librarian and talk about that book with that individual. And they might even elevate that into a request to re remove the book. Um, and so what we're seeing now is attempts to remove large numbers of books all at once. It's not a parent asking questions about a book. It's a political advocacy group demanding that entire swaths of information be erased from library shelves. And as I said, primarily dealing with LGBTQ persons or persons of color, uh, African-Americans. Yeah. Well, George Johnson, you have very personal experience with this. We mentioned All Boys Aren't Blue has become one of the most banned books in the nation. Um, probably not a title that you wanted to. <laughs> uh, when can you tell me a little bit about the book um, to start and, and kind of why you wrote it? Yeah, the book realistically, um, it's a young adult memoir about my life um, growing up in city of Plainfield, New Jersey, um, as a young black queer child um, to a very loving black family that um, supported me in many ways uh, throughout my adolescence and into my, um, my journey into adulthood. And when I wrote the book, I was writing it for, you know, the 15-year-old the that I once was that didn't feel seen in books that didn't feel seen on television and uh, didn't have any visibility and representation. And so realistically, it was, you know, a, a love letter to the person that I once was and, you know, just trying to provide the resource for the teen who is me today. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it has become now one of the most polarized books uh, in the country. Um, it was number two this year on the banned book list. Um, but, you know, in reality, a lot of us grew up not feeling seen, not feeling heard, um, not knowing that people existed like us before us 
And I wanted to write something that ensured that the next generation of young adult readers um, never had to. Yeah. Uh, Deborah Caldwell Stone, I mean, what do we know about the value of letting young people see themselves in books as George is talking about, um, even if it might make some adults uncomfortable? Well, we know that when young people have access to materials that reflect the diversity of lives and experiences, that it actually improves educational outcomes for individuals and provides essential support to young people who might be dealing with tragedies in their lives or struggling with particular experiences in their lives. We hear this from the young people themselves. But researchers in education and in librarianship have actually done the research on this and can track how educational outcomes improve. It creates empathy. It encourages the ability to uh, uh, critically interrogate uh, situations uh, and think about them carefully to engage as, uh, uh, as an adult with others in society and to be successful in their work and their educational experiences. You know, uh, and we even hear stories about how it can be life-saving. Um, I think one of the most, you know, what we I hear over and over again is from high school students, for example, who thought, thought that they were all alone in the world. And then they discover a book like George's book, and they find out that they are not alone, that there's a way through. And even in the midst of being bullied or isolated and perhaps a small rural community, that there's a future to look forward to and that they have something uh, that reaffirms their very lives. Books can do so many wonderful things for young people and to limit access based on someone's prejudices or political views or religious views can be really harmful to them. Yeah. Um, I want to play a cut from one of the groups that has led a lot of these book bands, Moms for Liberty. Tiffany Justice was speaking on News Nation's Cuomo in April here. Well, first, I'd like to say that no one is looking to ban books. And Moms for Liberty certainly isn't. You should write the book. You should print the book. You should publish the book. You should sell the book. The book should go into to the public library in your community if taxpayers want to pay for it. Um, and, and so we're not advocating for banning anything. What we're talking about is curating content in a library. You wouldn't have the same books in a medical college that you would in a seminary. And just because a book is printed doesn't mean that it belongs in a children's library. George M. Johnson, I'd love to hear you respond to that. Um, this question of obviously different things are appropriate for different ages, right? But what's your response to Tiffany Justice saying we're not banning books. We just don't want them available to kids in certain places. Yeah, she should look up the definition of a ban because that's what that means. Um, you know, realistically, they like to use the word children a lot of times, even though most of the books that are being banned are for 14 to 18 year olds. Right. So they like to play with words in that way. Um, and that's the unfortunate part is because they try to do like this media spin where it's like, well, you know, a medical book shouldn't belong in a seminary. It's like, yeah, but a book that is meant for, let's say, a seven year old that is written in the children's space that just talks about two moms and two dads, what is the, what's the issue, right? Um, because nothing in there is graphic. 
right? And so, but our book, my book specifically, it talks to what I went through as a teenager. So why shouldn't teenagers read about what other teenagers went through? Um, It's nefarious on its face because they know that many of these teens, they don't have access to purchase the book. And the library provides free access for those who don't have that same type of access. We also know it's a lie because they have started to try and stop funding to public libraries, not just the libraries at high schools or in middle schools or in elementary schools. They have, and in Virginia, they tried to make Barnes and Noble remove two books. So they say that like, oh no, it's just about, you know, we just don't think it should be in here. But they also believe that their one child who they don't want to read it gets to trump the other 20 children who do want to read it. Yeah, I would confirm that so absolutely. And a misconception of what libraries are and what libraries do, both in school libraries and public libraries. You know, they have to serve a broad base of individuals. They have to be able to serve the needs of everyone. And when you say that one person's concerns, one parent's concerns should trump the mission and need of libraries to make sure that every teen using a high school library has the books they need available to them in the library uh, based on their objection is absolutely um, a misconception of what libraries are. And I would also agree with George that, you know, if, if what you're doing is restricting access to books, telling people that they can't read books, not making the books available to the very audience they're intending for, that's censorship and you should own it. But of course, no one wants to be known as a censor, so they take this different tack. That's Deborah Caldwell-Stone with the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom. Also here with us, George M. Johnson. And we want to hear from you. What book helped you feel seen, understood, and less alone? Or have you ever objected to a book being taught or provided to your child? How did you deal with it? You can give us a call at 866 you can email us at forum at kqed.org or find us on social media at kqed forum i'm marisa lagos in for alexis madrigal we'll be right back after a short break this is barbara leslie president of the oakland port commission oakland international airport oak is proud to bring you this podcast of kqed's forum when you're choosing your next adventure the smart and convenient choice is to fly the east bay way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and for Alexis Madrigal. Today we're talking about the rise of book bans across the U.S. with Deborah Caldwell-Stone of the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom, author George M. Johnson, and Jeff Horseman, Riverside County Government and Regional Politics Reporter for the Southern California News Group. Jeff, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. So we wanted to check in with you. Um, I think we'll get into some of the the bands across the nation, specifically in a bit. But this has come home to roost in California here. Um, just a few weeks ago, the governor and attorney general and superintendent of the state school system did send out a letter across the state warning local school districts uh, about state law and and you know and saying that. Um, there are protections, free speech protections in California. Um, and then we saw a little bit of a dust up in Temecula. Fill us in on what is going on with that school district. Certainly. Well, Temecula and Southwest Riverside uh, County, uh, the conservative school board majority, which came to power in December, um, banned a social studies curriculum from elementary school because the sup- not the textbook, but the supplemental materials contained a mention of uh, Harvey Milk, the uh, late LGBTQ civil rights icon. And the reason being the board president called Harvey Milk a pedophile. And that led to a condemnation on Twitter from Governor Gavin Newsom and a letter from the attorney general wanting a bunch of materials about how the board reached its decision. And the board president pushed back, said, well, yeah, I stand by what I said, and it's because... Harvey Milk had a allegedly had a relationship when he was 33 years old with a 16 year old in New York City. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's one of many actions that uh, this board has done that are controversial, but uh, it certainly uh, caused a quite a stir down here. Yeah. I mean, we also saw them fire the superintendent. Um, I'm just curious. I know that there's some talk by by opponents of recalling the school board. What's been the reaction in the community to specifically the Harvey Milk conversation? Well, ever since this, again, this trio, they came to power in December. They hold a, uh, a three to two majority on the board. Uh, it's really divided the community. And Temecula has traditionally been a conservative city, although we've seen in more recent years, the emergence of a progressive movement that's been uh, kind of pushing back against uh, the city politics. And so it's it's led to a lot of emotional uh, confrontations and people getting kicked out of school board meetings. It's led to a lot of protests. Uh, I would just say that it's uh, it's really become a hot button issue in this city of uh, roughly 100,000. Yeah. And I know you're not following this as closely, but not too far out on the coast there in Huntington Beach in Orange County. There's also been um, a move by the school board to at least explore the idea of restricting what they say would be obscene books from kids. Is that right? Yeah, I, I believe the mayor there wants to somehow uh, remove or, or, or take off the shelves or restrict uh, books that she deems to be obscene. Uh, to, and again, it's kind of the same message you're hearing from a lot of these uh, folks who are looking to do this is, you know, we're trying to protect children. And so you're seen in Huntington Beach, you're seen in Temecula. And as you've been discussing here, this is something that's really been happening uh, nationwide. Yeah. Well, um, Jeff Horseman, Riverside County Government and Regional Politics Reporter for the Southern California News Group. We appreciate your reporting and your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Deborah Caldwell Stone, um, with the dire- uh, you're the director of the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom. What do you hear when you hear a word like obscenity being used as a kind of uh, catch all for for these types of attempts? Like who would decide what's obscene? What do we know about, you know, what the law considers obscenity to begin with? Well, first. Uh, when you ask me what I hear when I hear groups 
or individuals using the word obscene to describe books that are constitutionally protected, um, developmentally appropriate books for young people, uh, no matter what the targeted audience. Um, I'm looking at an attempt to stigmatize books that deal with gender identity, sexual orientation as illegal materials, which is absolutely a falsehood. The Supreme Court has carefully defined a very narrow category of material that could be deemed obscene or obscene for minors. It's a three-part test. And core to the three-part test is not whether or not the materials touch on sex or sexuality, but whether the works have educational value, have political value, artistic value, um, that they are, you know, that they illuminate issues and are not simply intended to titillate. And, and you know, these books that are at issue, when the Huntington Beach mayor holds up books like Genderqueer and calls them obscene, it's an absolute misuse of the phrase, and it's an attempt to stigmatize to other uh, individuals who are writing books about gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, and it's a very deliberate campaign. I call it one of the most pernicious lies associated with groups like Moms for Liberty, that books or pornography are illegal or obscene, and carrying that over into their conversation. You know, it's absolutely wrong. These are materials that are meant to illuminate, educate, share experiences, um, you know, provide a perspective uh, on other people's lives. Um, and they absolutely deserve to be on the shelf of the library as developmentally appropriate, um, as intended by the author and the reader who wants to read them. Um, and it's really an effort to try to uh, claim that somehow the law is being broken. And what we've seen out of this is a terrible attempt to attack librarians, attack educators, attack authors, claiming that they're engaged in illegal activities by simply making these books available to young people. And unfortunately, elected officials are buying into these arguments out of an ignorance of the law or deliberate dis indifference to the law and, and, and passing laws and ordinances that are absolutely censorious in their intent and result. Yeah. Um, George Johnson, uh, you know, you talked about how you did not have the opportunity to kind of see yourself in books as you were growing up in the same way that you hope your book, All Boys Aren't Blue, can do for queer kids. On the other hand, um, I'm an English major. I love reading. I think that there's often themes that are helpful when you have a teacher, a librarian, somebody to help you navigate them. I'm just wondering how you think about that tension and, and to kind of how we can you know, uh, again, make sure that kids are reading things that are age appropriate, but are challenging to them as well. Yeah, you know, it's a <clears throat> it's an interesting question, right? Because people, they talk about like, well, what's age appropriate, right? And so I find it interesting because on one hand, you're like, oh, well, Harvey Milk, you know, allegedly had a relationship with a 16-year-old while he was 33 years old. But then on the other hand, you're also saying, we're going to remove your book that talks about consent and rape culture and the things that help protect the teens from people who potentially are groomers, right? So it's like, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't say this subject is too heavy on this side, but it's also too heavy on the side that protects them too. Um, and so I think that's where I start to struggle with this, right? Um, the If you think about what just happened a couple of months ago, where they had to take the 10-year-old across state lines to get 
um, uh, an abortion because she was uh, raped. Well, if a 10-year-old, if we have kids who are dealing with those type of sexual traumas, then you can't say they're not ready to have those discussions when they're living it, it every day and it's their lived experiences. I think we don't give enough credit to, to children, to young adults, um, to middle graders who are actually receiving information not just from inside the house. And so what a parent is thinking is, oh, well, my child knows nothing about it while they're sitting at a lunch table and that's all they're talking about. But you're then removing the, the things that will help them to navigate those subjects that you're considering heavy that has actually just become their lived experience. Um, it's like you can't cut on the TV without hearing about um, the former president and sexual assault charges and rape allegations. And, and so it's like living in like this, almost like this alternative universe where it's like this, this belief that they're not already receiving information on these very heavy subjects. I mean, I'm pretty sure most young adults know what just happened with Roe v. Wade. Right. So then say, well, these books that talk about sex, oh, no, 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 that's too much. You just removed their right to get a medical procedure done that only happens after you have sex. So you you know it's like you can't have it both ways where you think it's too heavy of a subject but it's also the only thing you're only you're always talking about. Right. I mean it seems like there's kind of a dual we want to protect kids from the realities of the world which to your point isn't possible anyway. And then also kind of a sense that that if you read about whatever it is queerness uh, you know other things that it would somehow encourage you to change who you are, which is, I think, a little far-fetched. Um, I want to read some comments. Sean writes, am I wrong to think that the best way to ensure a book gets ri read widely is to ban it? I mean, look at the book and film The Last Temptation of Christ. It would have been an art house film until the Catholic Church banned it. And Noelle tweets, kids are resilient and can handle books. Parents can be fragile, it seems, or they forgot how it was being young. Well, we do not want to forget what it was like to be young. So we want to bring in a, a high schooler. Jaya Rivera is an officer at the Vand, uh, Vandegrift High School Band Book Club. That's in Austin, Texas. And they are making it their mission to read a lot of these books. Jaya, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of this club. When did you all start and how many books have you read? We started our junior year, and basically what had happened was the book bans in Texas were picking up quite a lot to the point where it was affecting even our own school district and access to our books. And we've read a ton of books so far this year, tons that have been challenged on the national level, like, for example, V for Vendetta or Stamped, books like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what's been your takeaway? Do you feel like this has been an educational experience? Like what have you learned from these books? What conversations have they sparked? I think it's definitely been an educational experience. A lot of the books that we've been reading are such unique stories because a lot of the ones that we've picked to read are memoirs or they're personal stories from authors who have situations that aren't typically common 
for me to see every day. And learning about them and reading about them has really expanded my worldview in a way that I couldn't get just by interacting with my peers every day at mm-hmm. school. And the fact that they're getting banned is sort of it is kind of opening my eyes to the dual standard that they kind of have for students. Like they think that we can't handle certain topics, but at the same time, we're not allowed to talk about them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there anything that you have wanted help navigating either with your peers or with adults? Is anything on the reading list that you've gone, okay, I want to talk this over with somebody and think about it. There's definitely been instances where I was like, what? Because I've never heard of that before. Like we read a book about a girl who was intersex. And for a lot of the people in the band book club, that was the first time that they've ever even heard that term, much less read an entire book about it. And we wanted resources to kind of dive more into the topic so we could defend the book at our school board. But a lot of, we were surprised by the resistance to it. But there was definitely a lot of topics that we read about, like the intersex, for example, that we wanted to explore more, but we just couldn't. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Um, Jaya Rivera of uh, the Vandergrift High School Band Book Club, stick with us. I want to bring in a few callers. Um, Makila from Berkeley, go ahead. Makila, you there? Uh, hey. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, hi, I'm here. Uh, I was calling because, so I have a daughter who's 12. And she's an avid reader. And, you know, she's been reading everything, manga, novels. And, you know, some of the manga she reads is really violent. Mm-hmm. And recently I discovered some of the novels that she's reading uh, depict pretty graphic sex. And the thing is, uh, you know, this all this stuff was being introduced to her a little sooner than I would have liked. But on the flip side, you know, the, the, the cat's out of the bag, you know, and I... I think as a parent, I'm, I feel like you either ban all these books, which I really am against, or you find a way to open conversation about these books. Right? Yeah, I wanted and to I, ask you about that. Like, how, what, what has that allowed you to talk about, you know, with your kid that maybe wouldn't have come up already? Well, I mean, it's, it was one of those things where I was really surprised. Like, I didn't. You know, I saw one of these books and I was like, whoa, this is super violent. And then at one point I was telling her, you know, hey, there's this, I was, you know, we were talking about books that I would recommend to her. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to wait until you're a teenager to recommend books that maybe have a little bit too much graphic uh, expressions of intimacy. And she's like, oh, I've read those. And I'm like, what? So, uh, you know, so we talked about it and I I probed and luckily at 12, she was still willing to talk to me. Mm. And she told me, well, I I, you know, I read this and I read that and I was like, okay, well, you know, we, so we talked about the sex act and consent and oral sex is, you know, like the intercourse is more, anyway, we had a, we had a conversation, which is probably the first of many, but I think, you know, if we're going to let kids read books that maybe we as parents aren't quite ready for, I wish that I had more warning maybe Mm. or if i I mean i wish there was a way for me to know what she's reading not to stop her from reading it but just so i know so i can open up the conversation because in some of the books you know the thing is she's not really high reading high quality fiction that is depicting you know these intense moments in the american experience or in 
you know, the experience of a young person growing up, she's just reading trash. And, uh, you know, a lot of this trash is maybe dubious consent and really violent acts. And, you know, it's one of those things where everyone's so worried about these really high-level, really quality books, but nobody's really thinking about, well, how do we address these other books? Thanks, Michaela. That's really uh, an interesting point. And Deborah Caldwell-Stone, I mean, there's two things we're talking about here when it comes to families. I mean, in some in some situations, kids are going to be reading things their parents they know are uncomfortable with and they're not probably going to share it with them, right? If Especially if they're exploring sexuality or other kind of parts of themselves. On the other hand, we have parents like Michaela who's like, I want to have, like, this can open up conversations, right? I'm just curious, how do you think about this? And and also about the question of kind of highbrow literature versus, you know, what graphic novels and other, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to call anything trash, but <laughs> Deborah, um, but, you know. Where you're talking about so many things all at once, yeah. you know, and you know, you know, when you talk about all the various genres of material that's out there, romance, uh, whatever, uh, sci-fi, whatever, you know, there is this kind of tendency to think that that's pure entertainment. But you have to think about you want to develop that habit of reading. You want to encourage a love of reading and and um, reading, you know, understanding more about the world and exploring the world through literature, through other experiences, you know, and even, you know, uh, even what you might consider the, the most uh, silly of trash or, or genre or whatever is a doorway to that love of reading. Mm. So, you know, we know, we see eight, you know, eight-year-old boys reading fart books and, you know, at 12, they're reading broadly and, and they have a love of reading. So keep that in mind about that. Issue. I agree. I mean, I like to read a range of <laughs> things. We are talking about the rise of book bans across the U.S. That was Deborah Caldwell-Stone of the American Library Association. Also here, author George M. Johnson and J. Rivera, Rivera, excuse me, of Austin, Texas, who has started a band book club with some of her classmates. I'm Marisa Lagos in today for Alexis Madrigal. Give us a call or shout out. Is there a book that has helped you feel seen, understood, or less alone? Um, what do you remember about previous eras of U.S. history when books were banned? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can email us at kqed at forum at kqed.org or find us on twitter facebook or instagram at kqed forum we'll be right back after a short break this is barbara leslie president of the oakland port commission oakland international airport oak is proud to bring you this podcast of kqed's forum when you're choosing your next adventure The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. And for Alexis Magical, we are talking book bans and censorship. And we just had a caller um, talking about some of the concerns she's had with her young child or tween, I would say, 12-year-old, reading stuff that she thinks might be a little bit advanced. Um, George M. Johnson, author of All the Boys Aren't Blue, which has the uh, is become one of those banned books in the U.S. I-, I wonder what you think about this age-appropriate question because, you know, we have a rating systems on movies, for example. Uh, we have explicit lyrics warnings on songs. Um, and we do have sections in libraries that are aimed at different age groups. But as an author and, you know, somebody who it sounds like probably did a lot of their own reading as a teen, um, how would you think about that? Like how we talk to and manage who, when kids should read certain things. Yeah. I always think that's like a very interesting question because one, it also kind of goes back to like how they're being nefarious about the banning of books because books also have age. Like we put the ages that they're for on there and we put grade levels that they're for on the books. So, you know, when, when they say, well, movies have ratings or this has ratings, it's like, so do books. Mm-hmm. Like, they have those same ratings. And Although, to be fair, you're not allowed to, like, go to a movie, movie theater and watch rated R film, but you could go buy any book, right? I mean, in most places. Oh, buy any book, yeah. But, I mean, you know, like, I, I don't know many 11-year-olds or 12-year-olds who are taking themselves to the store to buy whatever books they want. <laughs> That's true. Um, fair. You know, I mean, it's just like, I, it's, I get it, but also it's like, and I also was a kid who snuck in the movies before I was supposed to. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's like kids are going to, kids are going to find access to the things that they want to find access to, right? And so I think that's what the problem really is. It's like, we're, we're having a, a conversation around what's age appropriate in a world that is already showing them things that you may deem is not age appropriate, right? And the best example I can give is, you know, let's say, you know, uh, 25 years ago, um, my parents didn't want me to know anything about, you know, sex or read any books about sex. Well, unfortunately, the biggest news story in the country was with Bill Clinton and right. <laughs> when I was 12. So it's like, well, we don't want you reading about something that is literally the largest news story in the world at the time. Right. So it's like we try to do that. Like, when is it age appropriate? But the problem is they're already having access to it from so many other touch points that the books aren't the issue, right? Like books are not the only touch point to access information. Well, and in these this day and age, I mean, I often wonder if, if some of the groups that are pushing these bans allow their kids to have electronic devices because you can access pornography, a whole host of inappropriate things online. I mean, J.R. Rivera, as a, as a teenager, like, how do you think about this? Do you feel that anything, you know, your club has read, have your parents objected or have you felt like, oh, wow, that you know, wasn't appropriate for me yet. I personally don't think so. A lot of the stuff that we have read in terms of like graphic sex scenes weren't even all that graphic. A lot of times it was used to illustrate a further point, whether it was about abuse in relationships or recognizing something that you're not ready for. All stuff that is like an important stepping stone for important conversations as you grow up and it was much less about the fact that there was sex in the book than people were too afraid to talk about it Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah 
Absolutely. Um, we have a lot of calls coming in and comments. Michael wants to say, right, Michael writes in, my mother trusted the school and public libraries to shelve books appropriate to my age, but she inspected books I purchased from bookstores to make sure they weren't too racy. I mean, that's a good point, Deborah Caldwell Stone. Um, you know, we had invited uh, an author, uh, Jewel Rhodes, on today. Um, and part of the reason I thought of this show is I took my 10-year-old to go see her do a talk at the library. And she's written uh, a number of books about um, you know, serious issues, including um, uh, a Ghost Boys, which is about uh, a, a young black boy who was shot and killed by police. I believe that's been banned in Florida. How important, though, is it? I mean, what Michael's talking about, just to to, to engage as a parent um, and, and have these conversations. I mean, I'm reading that book so that I can talk to my kid about it when he reads it. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is so important, you know. As, a, as an institution, the library can't stand in place of the parent. And we've always believed that a parent knows the child best. So we strongly encourage parents to talk to their young people about what they're reading, um, to be aware of what they're reading. If they're truly concerned about what they're accessing in libraries or bookstores, they should be with their child when the child goes to libraries and bookstores. But the library can't understand what an individual child or young adult is dealing with, they won't restrict access to materials that are intended for that audience. And be assured that librarians do catalog and shelf materials based on the intended audience and, you know, are anxious to have materials that are developmentally relevant to the age group that they're uh, intended for. But we can't always shield young people from trauma or difficult experiences and we know that they want to read about them, to process them, to understand another's experience. And libraries exist to make those materials available. And librarians are always anxious to work with young people, to work with parents, to match the reader to the book. I mean, that's why the original aphorisms of librarianship is every book has its reader. And, you know, that's the role that we try to serve without getting in the way of art, uh, imposing our you know, a restriction based on someone else's personal beliefs about what's appropriate for a young person. That's really a decision for the young person and their parent to make, not anyone else. Yeah. All right. I want to bring in more callers. Marsha from Santa Rosa, go ahead. Hi there. Good morning. I am, first of all, so appreciative that we live in an area that is having these robust, wonderful, you know, conversations. Uh, my perspective is... That of, uh, I'm 77 years old. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, um, when there was no information available to us teens at all about our gender identity, our sexual expression, how you got pregnant or not. My introduction to the queer world was my mother nudging me at the age of 12 in a movie theater that that person swishing down the aisle was half man and half woman was called a fairy. Uh, I got a master's at Berkeley in psychiatric social work. There was no understanding at the time that there were nuances or differences between being a transvestite, a heterosexual person, cross-dressing, a transsexual. I was assigned um, as a therapy student a uh, person to work with who was black and assumed to be acting out as a gay young man was threatened at his home with a father who was 
so severely attack him that we were afraid he could be killed. Uh, he was going out with older men and was actually a transsexual uh, woman who <laughs> was unidentified. I became a therapist in intimacy and sexual issues. And the, the, the point that I wanted to stress is that underneath all of this, there is a fear, not only of differences, but of the natural, broad human spectrum of gender identity and sexual expression that cannot be addressed by pretending it's not there, being afraid that it's there, trying to silence people whose expressions don't fit a narrow, um, you know, binary definition. And, you know, I've had a number of people in my life try to commit suicide from not understanding and not being accepted and not having any road or discussion or way to find out who, you know, if I can use the word God, just as yeah. a euphemism even. Marshall, no, I, we yeah. we made to be. Yeah. Know? We don't have any way to, to love ourselves and express and Thank, be happy. Yeah. Thank you so much for the call, Marsha. I mean, George M. Johnson, um, award-winning author of the young adult memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue. A lot of what Marsha's talking about is probably why you wrote that book, right? Exactly that. I mean, it's, it's exactly that. And mind you, Marsha was talking about, she said she was 77. I'm 37. So 40 years later, I still didn't have anything to read. I still didn't have mm. anything that showed my experience, that talked about my experience. And I grew up in you know, New Jersey, and I even grew up with a transgender cousin named Hope. So there was queerness around me, but there was nothing to help us define what that meant. There was nothing to say what my journey would look like. Um, nothing to talk about how because of the intersections and because of the communities that I fall into, how let's say certain things like the HIV epidemic would affect me differently than it would possibly affect my heterosexual cousins because of um, risk factors, right? Mm -hmm. But there was no materials for that, even though I was going to be a sexual person at some point. And so in writing the book, it's literally just trying to fill these gaps that have always existed because the powers that be always wanted to suppress the experiences of others um, in an effort to rewrite the history of this country, to indoctrinate us all, to think that there was only one way of being, one way of thinking, and one way of living. Yeah. But that brings up a good point I'd love Deborah Caldwell-Stone to weigh in on, which is we're talking now about mostly a conservative movement to ban queer books, uh, books dealing with race and equity. But historically, we've also seen some of this pressure from the left, right? I mean, there's been movements in the past to ban books like Huck Finn because of racist comment or, or content. And I mean, that gets to kind of what George is talking about, which is uh, information is power. And, and you know, we part of it is being honest about both who artist is, but also our own history, even if that's uncomfortable for either side, right? Absolutely. And, you know, yes, we don't, uh, we hear from both sides of the political spectrum from the range of opinion about why books should be removed from libraries. But it's always been the firm position of libraries, librarians, that it's up to the reader to make choices and that it's the role of the librarian to make those choices available so that people can read and make up their own minds about an issue uh, to explore issues and have raise their own questions, do further exploration. It's the nut and core of intellectual freedom. 
our belief that individuals have the power, the capacity, the agency to read and to reject what is bad and to move forward with what's good. And libraries are completely organized around that concept that individuals uh, can make those great choices. And in regards to young people, you know, again, libraries will you know, absolutely support parents. We think parents have the right and the responsibility, and I'll emphasize that word responsibility, to guide their children's reading, but it's not the role of the library to get in the role of that exploration. Um, you know, it's uh, truly uh, uh, an opportunity for everyone to read and discover for themselves about these various issues. Um, and, you know, we don't want to artificially um, limit that in any way. But also, you know, there's a role for librarians to play uh, in uh, providing guidance on certain resources that might be promulgating falsehoods, you know, right. um, lies, misrepresenting research, or even being fake research that's tended to do harm. Uh, and it's one of the roles of the library to point that out to individuals when they're looking at those materials. Yeah. I mean, I keep coming back to this, but I always think, you know, there's a value in having someone help you navigate anything. I mean, I think back to majoring, you know, in college, I was telling my producers, like, I would, I never read, would have read in the James Joyce in its entirety without an excellent professor helping uh, me along. Um, another listener wants to say the book bans are often a crude attempt to critique ideologies on the left, including gender identity ideology and anti-racism and DEI ideologies. No doubt the book bans are often a desperate overshoot, but it's the left side of the discord that is absolutely saturated with vast errors of omission on these topics. Uh, we'll let that stand. Um, I want to bring in one last caller, um, Peter in San Francisco. Peter, go ahead. Yes, hi. Thanks very much for having this excellent discussion. Uh, this is Peter Warfield from Library Users Association. We're interested in better libraries for everyone. Barriers to access of books is not just a matter of pulling books or even selecting, uh, not selecting certain books. It can also be in a variety of ways less obvious and maybe more subtle. So, for example, uh, one uh, gay author that I looked up recently had 11 or 12 items in the catalog. Every single one of them was on delayed paging or paging, which meant you'd never see any of those on the shelf, mm. and you'd have to fill out a slip of paper with your name and the title, which you'd have to figure out from the catalog or some other way. Um, and delayed paging is even worse. There you have to wait until another day the next day to get the item. Additionally, lack of technological access to things. For example, one of George's books is an audio book that you can get without owning a computer. You could listen to it on a library computer, except that in San Francisco, our library does not give out earphones or headphones of oh, any kind. Doesn't yeah. loan them. And so if you're poorer or any of the vulnerable populations, you're not going to have access uh, right. to that book Thanks, at all. Peter. That's, yeah, very interesting. Uh, interesting call. Um, we have a couple more comments I'd like to read. Uh, Susan writes, I studied World War II during my undergraduate academics. That's the reason over the time of Trump's presidency and the recent surge in book mannings in the U.S. that I and many others have felt we are on the path to fascism if the government doesn't step up and loudly support portions of the Constitution relating to free speech and civil rights. I don't see that happening at this point in time and find that scary. I next expect book burnings as occurred in Germany in the 1930s. Well, um, Jay Rivera, before 
before we let you go, uh, you and your um, classmates created this entire band book club at your school in Austin, Texas. Uh, I wonder kind of what's next for you all. Are you hopeful that, you know, this what what's happening in your community could spread? We are definitely hopeful. When we first started the club, we had no idea the outreach that we would get. And we've been lucky enough to have a community and a school that has been overwhelmingly supportive with us. So we've been able to sort of reach out with other schools and other libraries. Like we just recently worked with the Brooklyn Public Library and the Penn America. And we've had all of these great opportunities. And while I understand concerns about the book bannings, I also think that there is a really strong movement coming up, especially with people my age. We've seen people in my grade especially get interested in stuff like this. So it's really wonderful to see. Yeah. And George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue, we had a comment earlier saying, if you want a book to sell, ban it. <laughs> Has that been your experience? And how are you trying to kind of push back against the censorship? Yeah. Um, so I... Fortunately, the banning has brought more awareness to my book. So I have seen my sales go up in certain areas. Mm. But what people don't realize is, even though on the public facing side, the sales may be going up, the bans hurt us on the school and library side, where we authors sometimes can move hundreds of thousands of books through school systems. So it's a double edged sword when we start to talk about um the the sales thing because yeah publicly you can look and it's like oh amazon your numbers look up but it's like but how much larger could they have been if these books could actually go into schools that now are um they have blocked them from um what was the second part of your question i'm sorry uh, <laughs> we'll probably have to leave it there but we're going to keep watching all this i know there's a number of lawsuits and other kind of legal actions pushing back on this ban um We've been talking this hour about the rise of book banning across the U.S. That was George M. Johnson. They're an award-winning author of the young adult memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, one of the most banned books in the U.S. George, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Jaya Rivera was here. She is officer at the Vandegrift High School Band Book Club in Austin, Texas. Jaya, we really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. And finally, Deborah Caldwell-Stone is director of the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom and executive director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. Deborah, thanks for your perspective. Well, thank you. And I would only add that if anyone wants to do something about book banning, go to uniteagainstbookbans.org. You'll find a wealth of tools to All address right. something. Uniteagainstbookbans.org. We also spoke with Jeff Horschman from the Southern California News Group. I'm Marisa Lagos and for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of forum with guest host Leslie McClurg. Funds for the production of KQED's forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. 
So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.